Can I uh, encourage you as well? Jeff mentioned briefly that we have a, a business meeting for the family, the church here next Sunday night. I, I know quite often that bumps into your busy schedules and many things happening in your own world. Uh, we, we do these meetings primarily to give you an opportunity to interact with us over the life of the church, the activities of the church questions that you may have, uh, things that are just more about the operations and activity and future events in the church that would give you some background information to be able to participate. And, and your input matters to us. Your participation matters to us. You being informed matters to us. You bearing the weight and the burden of ministry here matters to us. And, and probably more so than in recent years, uh, there's just a number of things that we really do want you to be well informed of. Uh, there are issues concerning Sovereign Grace Ministries that we want to address in this meeting. There are issues about future staffing as God is adjusting the leadership team here in the church that we want you to be well informed about. There is issues of church planting that we want to move forward with in the coming year that we want you to be well informed about. So please set some time aside. Uh, if you can come join us for dinner. That's great, 5.30, but the meeting starts at 6.30. If you can just be here for that, that's, that's fine as well. We're trying to serve families by adding dinner uh, as well if you need to have us help you with that. Uh, you know, I know we've talked about this as we've walked through this ministry of the Holy Spirit. You guys can start that little red thing so it just doesn't stare at me and tell me I haven't said anything so far yet. Uh, otherwise, we'll be here for a while. Um, all right, right now... You're about to encounter the word of God preached. All right, so nobody should be relaxed in this moment. You should, be, you should be tense. You should be nervous. You should be very awake. All right, how many of you guys ever thought that listening to the word of God preached is sort of like, well, it can be like a variety of things. It can be like a trip to Home Depot. It can be like a time at Barnes and Nobles. Or, or for some, it can be like a doctor's visit. Or it could be all of those, right? You could, you could leave this time of encountering God's word more equipped, right? You're going to take some tools with you. You're going to do ministry from here for some. That's what this meeting's about. For others, it's going to be like sitting, picking up a book in Barnes and Nobles and uh, getting it for free because you're not going to take it home with you, but you get this for free. And it's going to give you something to think about. For some, it's going to be like a trip to the doctor. And, uh, and you're going to get a shot today and before that shot actually gets through your body and helps you, it's going to hurt. And so I think for some here, and I am saying this to prepare you, uh, for some of you today, this, this message is going to hurt you before it helps you. It's going to help you. But it's going to hurt you before it helps you. And quite honestly, my prayer is that you don't walk away remembering the mean nurse with the needle. I'm hoping you're going to walk out of here saying, ow, that hurt. But then the nurse was nice, but man, did that hurt. That was a painful shot. Uh, and I really do sincerely mean that. I hope I, I'm, I'm not in the way and you're not remembering the mean nurse instead of the helpful medicine. 1 Peter chapter 4. We are not too far away from having studied through this entire book together. So congratulations. 
First Peter chapter 4. We're going to spend our time in verse 15 through verse 19, but Peter covered 12 through 14 for us. Let me just capture one element there that I think leads into where this passage ends up, and it's in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Right? This, this is helpful revelation from the word about what, what do you and I do when life hurts, when it's filled with suffering of some sort? Well, the first thing, and it's a very important thing, is in verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial you find yourself in. Do not be surprised. Listen, the the element of surprise, tactically speaking, if you're a military strategist, if you're a football coach, the element of surprise might be right up there with the most important tactic that you can have in your arsenal. Yeah, sure, brute force matters and ability to build defenses matters, uh, lines of supply at the front lines. I mean, all that strategy matters, but I think if you talk to military strategists and you visit strategic history and wars, you'll find that right up there at the top is the element of surprise. To catch the enemy off guard, right? Because it affords you some things, right? You think, you, you're, you know, you're walking out of a building and you are surprised by an attacker and immediately... You, you didn't walk out prepared. You didn't walk out thinking this is about to happen. So you're not, you're not postured. You haven't pulled a weapon. You, you, you're not defensive. Your arms aren't up. So by the time you realize what's happening to you, you've already been hit two, three, four times. And, and you are, you're staggering. You're off balance. You're on your heels. You're, you're not ready to respond. You're disoriented. You're not quite sure what to do next. Right? This is the condition of being surprised by something. Now, let's take that out of being attacked in a parking lot or out of some war zone and and put it into your life. There are situations in your life where where you were surprised by them, weren't you? I mean, Eric had had a word for folks this morning. I think it was just amazingly all that was shared this all that was shared this morning. I think God put together and orchestrated in an amazing way, and I think you'll see that as we preach through the word. But you can be surprised by a season that goes on for a long time. And, and, and you weren't ready for it to go this far. You weren't ready for it to take this long. And you're on your heels. You've been hit two, three times. You don't know how to respond. You're off balance. And, and, and the enemy has you because he surprised you. But see, the Bible's trying to tell us, brothers, do not be Surprised. Now, if, if you're a Christian and you're surprised by suffering and difficulty, well, then I, I think I listed, here's a couple of possible reasons why. One, we're either uninformed, 
Which, you know, if you're a new Christian, then you are uninformed. And this is news to you. And you're hearing this for the first time. And that's good. And it's helpful. But if you're, if you're not a new believer, then you're either unstudied or untrained. And so you stepped into a moment that got bigger than you are, much faster than you were ready for it, and you were unstudied and untrained. It's not a good spot to be in as a Christian. Listen, here's, here's why you can't be surprised in this world. Right, two reasons in your outline there. One, don't be surprised when the world you live in doesn't work right. I know that's not rocket science, isn't it? I just broke news to anybody here just now. Right, the doctrine of the fall tells us from the outset, this world is broken. Everything about it is broken. That's the doctrine of total depravity. It means everything in the created order has been touched by sin, and it unpredictably now doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And it's going to touch your life. So don't be surprised when that brokenness comes and touches your life in real ways. Everything from the weather to people to circumstances, things break. They don't work right. The relationships in your life, don't, they don't work right. Don't be surprised by that. But yet we are, aren't we? All right, second, to make that go one step further in the Bible, it's not just a matter of stuff's broken. In the fall, stuff broke. But in this fallen realm, number two there is don't be surprised when you are uniquely and specifically opposed by a spiritual personality who has handcrafted hostility for you. Now, if you've lost sight of either one of these, you're, you're probably surprised by trials on a regular basis. You're in a fallen world that is occupied by a spiritual personality. He's a real being. And he has specifically studied you so that he knows how to best engage your life and disrupt your faith in God. You are specifically a target of his opposition. So don't be surprised, right? Real quickly, look at these verses. They're very helpful. Ephesians 6 verse 11 Put on the whole armor of God, right? Don't be surprised. Be ready. Put on the whole armor of God. Then you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, right? Take up the armor. Be ready. Get dressed. Be trained, know how to use the armor, know how to put it on, know what part goes where. Listen, when, when suddenly life comes and gets in your face in a violent way, driven by a spiritual being called the devil, you, you don't have time to get dressed in that moment. That's the element of surprise, and he's going to beat your brains in. In that moment, you can't be unsheathing a sword and looking at it like, oh, oh so, so, so what is this, and, and where do I find this, and is there an index for this thing? Uh, how do I use the sword of the Spirit? You, 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 that's not a moment for you to suddenly get spiritual. You've got to be spiritual every day. The Bible says get dressed every day. Otherwise, you're going to be surprised, and if you get surprised, you're going to hit five, six, seven times. You're going to be on your spiritual backside quick, trying to fight. All right, listen to these quick verses here. 2 Corinthians 2, 
Paul says, for what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we were not ignorant of his designs. This, this, is, this is not some really deep spiritual warfare thing here. This is just talking about forgiveness. How's that for spiritual warfare? How about the fact that if you walked in here this morning and there are issues of unforgiveness in your life right now, people who've done you wrong, you got real good cause to not be forgiven this morning. Paul, Paul's dealing in everyday stuff right here. He's saying if you don't deal with that, you have given the devil a, a tactic against you, a tactical advantage against you. Listen, you don't want to give that dude an advantage against you. He's a deceiver. The world has fallen. He's already got enough stuff to work with. So if you're here today and you have issues of unforgiveness in your life, you're a fool to walk out of here with them, to not let God do the hard work in your life, overcoming your pride, because you live every day giving him an advantage. Every day you don't know something about what he's about to do next. Every day you're vulnerable to him. Paul says, if I did anything in the realm of forgiveness, it was to cut this dude off at the pass so that I couldn't give him an advantage in my life. All right, listen. Don't be surprised. All right, that's where this verse starts. Don't be surprised. Let me just give us a little map here. If we keep going here, we're going to follow this out, verse 15. Right? Don't be surprised. There's going to be suffering, it's going to be fiery, it's going to be intense. Verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer, though, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler, right? From, this, is, this is everything from murder to meddling, right? Murdering somebody to sticking your nose in somebody else's business. That's where this goes, right? This is the full gamut. So if you thought, oh, I'm not a murderer, are you a meddler? <laughs> Right, well, don't let anybody suffer as a result of that. So, so here the Bible is saying, look, there's this divinely orchestrated suffering thing, and then there's just you being a busybody and getting your nose involved where it doesn't belong, and, and I'm not even talking about that. So if your life is suddenly taken on realms of suffering, it's difficult, everybody hates you, uh, that's, that's sort of your own doing. Right, so the Bible is saying, hey, I'm not even talking about that. So if you're creating that kind of junk for yourself, don't. Just, just stop doing that. That would be wise, helpful counsel. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Here's where we end up. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to God, to a faithful creator, while doing good. All right, so here's our map. Starting gate is your life is in a place of severe suffering. And as we walk through this verse, we're going to end up in a place that's going to tell us to do two things. Entrust your souls to God and do good. All right, that's where this is going to end up. So let's pray. Father, there is, there is such help in this passage. God, I pray that you will deliver to each heart individually where we are to be able to receive from you in an amazing way this morning. Lord, all of, all of your word is inspired. Lord, I believe this morning you have set a, a meeting with us.
to help us in some very practical and very important ways. So, Lord, thank you for this word, and thank you for us being together to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, two things I, I want to do. I, I want to I make a case for obedience, because that's what, that gets highlighted here. As a matter of fact, it gets highlighted in the second verse of 1 Peter, that obedience matters, and I think I have to make a case for that. Because I think we live in a culture, in a Christian church world culture, where obedience doesn't seem to matter anymore. So I want to make a case for obedience. And then in the end, I want to give an umbrella of what biblical counseling sounds like. And if you're getting advice or giving advice that doesn't sound like this, then I don't think you're giving biblical advice. Or I don't think you're getting biblical advice. So we're going to end up there. But let's make a case for obedience first, right? When you look in 1 Peter... Chapter 1, verse 2, after greeting who he's sending this letter to, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, that's who you are, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Greetings, Peter says, for all of you dispersed, those of you who are known by God by his foreknowledge, who belong to him, who are called for sanctification and for obedience to Jesus Christ. Right? Your call is unto obedience. Right out of the gate, Peter wastes no time getting to that point. Question, does the grace of God make our obedience inconsequential? Right, theologically, do you understand what I mean by that? We preach the grace of God. You, could, you probably couldn't go back two weeks without us hearing us pound on the grace of God that came to your life without you having to generate it, not based on what you do, that is intending for God to accomplish something in your life, not based on your performance, not orchestrated in you and from you and because of you, but, but because of God and his goodness and his grace. So does that mean that if that's the way it operates, that coming pushing out of God is this powerful grace into our lives, he's going to pursue me, he's going to bless me in ways that I don't deserve, and Abraham and David and all the Bibles filled with characters like this. So does that mean my obedience is inconsequential? Whether I obey or not, does it really matter if that's how grace operates in our lives? Does a correct emphasis on grace and the gospel create a silence in the Bible about a Christian's conduct? Right? If, I, if I'm standing in this pulpit and I'm preaching grace and I'm preaching the gospel correctly, should I just not be talking to you about your conduct? Because it's grace and the gospel, right? That's what we're about. I, I think First Peter the writer is inspired by God. I think he knew something about grace and the gospel. Yet Peter, just in his short epistle here, uses the word conduct in terms of how you live five times. Just that one word alone he uses. And he addresses the manner of our life all over the place. And he teaches us about obedience. There's a question here. Because, you know, in that passage we just read, there are those who have obeyed the gospel and there are those who have not obeyed the gospel. So the gospel has this little trailer hanging on it when it drives somewhere called obedience. Wherever gospel goes, obedience is a part of what the gospel is about. So what's the basis for our obedience? Why why obey? We're going to see why in just a second in this passage. Let me just ask you, why obey? Why obey what the Bible says? Why obey God's leading. Is it, is it so that you and I can achieve acceptance before God? Now, that would not be the gospel, right? That would be the opposite of the gospel. 
So it's not for achieving acceptance before God. Uh, well, how about this? Is it, is it so that we can curry better favor from God? And I'm not saying I'm not accepted, but, you know, I, I want to improve my lot in life. I want God's favor on my life better. So is obedience, if I'm obedient to God, then I'm going I'm to get a better dose of God's favor. I have to answer that one with a yes and no. Because God does bless our obedience. And so you actually are going to experience a greater experiencing of grace through your obedience. However, if I'm honest with the Bible, I find God decides that he colors outside the line anytime he wants. And I have mercy on whom I have mercy. And he has mercy on some real rascals in the Bible. So you can have a nasty resume and then, boom, go to your mailbox tomorrow. And there's this package of the grace of God. Try to explain that one. Well, I can only explain it by God has mercy on whom he has mercy when he has mercy in our lives. But what about this? What about obedience for this reason? This is not flowery and great, is it? Because it's just right. What's the basis for my obedience to God? Well, it's, it's just right. I'm, I'm a created being. He's the creator. My obedience, it's a no-brainer. It's, it's just right. I mean, you don't, you don't walk out to your car, put your key in the ignition and turn it, and your car talks back and he says, nah, not in the mood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, not today. No, no, the, the starter, starter doesn't feel like starting today. You know, it's like, it's a car. It, it, you, it was created by something and you purchased it, and now it exists in your life to do your bidding. You know, start. So I mean, you get rid of cars who don't start, right? It's just Right. Now, what you find in this passage is obedience to God in the house of God just because he's there and it's right. And what's the basis for obedience? Well, when, when this gospel is obeyed, the basis for it, look at verse 17 here. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel, right? Those in the house are those who have obeyed the gospel. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner, right? Judgment begins at the house of God. Let me just quickly, this could be a big subject in and of itself. I appreciate the word that came this morning about there not being condemnation. Let me just tell you what judgment beginning in the house of God is not, right? Two passages there among many. John three seventeen for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. What's the basis for not being condemned by God? My obedience? Well, your obedience to the gospel. The gospel rescues me from being condemned. So it's not my ongoing obedience that makes me not be condemned. Okay? Right, I get redeemed out of condemnation. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You are not condemned. You could not be condemned. I couldn't condemn you no matter what I say from this pulpit this morning. If you're a Christian, I don't have the power to condemn you. But whoever does not believe is condemned. Right? So it's unbelief that condemns. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Romans 8, 1, spoken to believers. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And we sang that this morning. We listened to that again this morning. There is 
no condemnation. If you're a Christian, there is no condemnation for you. All right, so let's figure out what's happening in this passage because it just said judgments beginning with the house of God. All right, a couple of thoughts here. Thomas Schreiner says, Peter did not mean by this that God was punishing believers for their sins. Rather, suffering purifies the church and God uses it to provoke believers to make a clean break with sin. All right, did you get that? Peter's not saying here that God is punishing believers for their sin. Let me tell you why that's, that's an impossibility. Because the word that was given this morning accurately describes what the Bible has to say about what was happening at the cross. At the cross, all the punishment for sin was being absorbed by the Son of God and him alone. The, the cup of God's wrath... God's righteous response to punish and destroy the evil of sin was in a cup called the wrath of God. And God took it upon his son and poured it out every last drop. So when you and I get visited by God, we're visited by God with an empty cup. There's not a drop in it. You don't need to kind of be looking in God's face and looking at his hand, checking his cup and looking in his face and wondering, is it quarter full? So the third full, God, can I just interrupt you? How much is left in the cup for me? You don't ever have to ask that question. There's nothing in that cup for you. You will never know what it is to be condemned by God. You will never taste the wrath of God. Never. That's an amazing thing. That's different than what's being talked about in this passage. There's a fiery trial taking place in this passage. This fire, now this fire is going to do two things, and it gets illustrated here. For those who don't know God, this fire is a judgment that penalizes and punishes for past sins, right? Can we get a reference here? Past sins in my life are going to be penalized and punished. Now, if I'm not a believer, I'm going to bear that myself. I'm going to face the penalty and the punishment for my sin because I've chosen not to put my faith in Christ. He's, he's not the one who will drink the cup from me, therefore the cup belongs to me. The cup is full. And the fire of God, when the fire of God gets in my presence, it will consume my life and destroy me. But for the believer, that same fire, that same holy God, it's not like God's one God to the unbeliever and a different God to the believer. No, God is the same. So that fire, that holiness of God gets around me and it touches my life in a completely different way. It's still the holy fire of God. But now for me it purges and purifies. Not in order to atone for past sins, but in order to prepare me for future righteousness. Judgment begins with the house of God. That's what this passage is about. Don't be surprised when there's fiery, intense heat. You feel like you're in a cooker. Don't be surprised, Christian. That's just the presence of God in the midst of the people of God. God comes amongst his people as a refining fire, as Peter talked about a couple of weeks ago. And in that work of refining by the Spirit, it is about purifying and purging our lives for future righteousness, not for past failures. Right? So this is where sometimes you can get very confused. What's God doing in my life? Well, 
It sure feels intense. There are these fiery sufferings going on. There's difficulty in my life. And immediately you might say, well, that's, that's because I'm getting cooked. God's frying my behind because of last week or last year or my track record. Uh, maybe from the standpoint of does some of that need to get removed in order for you to move forward? Some of that need to get cooked off so that God can prepare you for future righteousness in your life? But, but what it is not, it's not God visiting punishment on you and payment and penalty on you for those sins. You understand there is no condemnation. Wayne Grudem helps a little bit there. He says, this word for judgment here in First Peter, krema, does not necessarily mean condemnation, which is a different word, katakrema, but is a broader term which can refer to a judgment which results in good and bad evaluations. All right? This is going to get a little uncomfortable. A judgment that can result in good and bad evaluations. A judgment which may issue in approval or discipline as well as condemnation. Depending on whether you belong to God or not. You're God's child and the, and the presence of God and the fiery presence of God is near to you. And it is bringing an evaluation of you. And it may approve of you or disapprove of you. And some people do not do well with that. Theologically, that turns some people upside down. The, I, wait, wait, wait. The, so the idea that God, wait, wait, God could be disapproving of me. I, I thought it was grace. I, I, thought, I thought it was under grace, man. I thought this, you know, the gospel of grace, right? I mean, God's for me. The favor of God is upon me. How could God be disapproving? Well, that, that, that shouldn't freak us out. God disapproving doesn't mean I'm no longer his child. God disapproving doesn't mean that, they, that he's withdrawn grace from me. He's holy and righteous, and there's stuff in me that needs to be disapproved of. Does that shock any of us? Here, listen, here's what the Bible says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say there is therefore now no correction for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, you know, some of us have developed this defense mechanism that anytime we get corrected, we immediately pull out the badge of condemnation and we say, ah, 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 there's no condemnation. Anytime a word comes to us and messes with our life, anytime an individual comes to us and confronts us in our sin, anytime we read the Bible and we feel bad because somehow I feel disapproved of, I feel like I've failed, I feel like I'm not doing the right thing, hey, hey, don't put that condemnation stuff on me. Hey, man, don't, don't be judging me like that. Don't put the, there's no condemnation, okay, pal? And we've insulated ourselves from what the Bible's trying to do. It's trying to correct us. It's, it's our bad theology that's confused condemnation and correction. It's not the Bible's fault. If you're convinced that there is no condemnation for you, and you've studied the atonement, right, you're well-studied, you are convinced from Scripture. There's not a person in this room that can, con- that, that can condemn you. I cannot condemn you with anything I'm saying. Because the blood of Christ has washed away the penalty of your sin. You cannot be condemned for your sin. But what if I'm sinning and you get on the wrong side of what I'm about to use as illustrations in just a moment? Are you going to somehow pull out some shield and shield myself from what Keith's saying this morning? That feels condemning. Why? Because it's disapproval? 
the God of the universe does disapprove of what you do when it is sinful. That, that shouldn't be news to us. It doesn't mean I'm condemned. It means I'm, I'm being corrected, and, and that's a good thing. See, turn to Malachi chapter 3. Peter is drawing from this imagery when he says this, and even into the next few passages, I think it's, it's lingering there. Last book of the Old Testament, the people of God are in need of correction. They need correction. And so this imagery of judgment begins with the house of God is coming out of the Old Testament picture that, remember, there was a house of God in the Old Testament. It was the temple It was located in Jerusalem. And so the imagery here was God comes and makes himself most prevalently known right there at an address called the temple in Jerusalem. That's what God had intended the Old Testament people of God to be. So his presence is there. And because his presence is there and God is holy and righteous, judgment therefore begins with the house of God. And it's going to work its way out into the world. That's what Peter is alluding to here. Now listen to these passages. Because you're going to see one fire and two types of people in this passage. Some are going to be refined. The other ones are going to be destroyed. Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. All right, can you just... See, this fire touches those who belong to God, and it purifies them for future righteousness. Do you see that? Here's a people who have gone wayward, but they're God's people, and God's fire starts with judgment in the house of God, and the refining fire of God begins to pull this junk out of them for future. They will bring offerings of righteousness. You see where this is going? It's not about God destroying them. It's about God preparing them for the future. Verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former days. That offering then will be pleasing. I have to read the Bible and allow it to have implications for what it says. So if that's going to be pleasing versus what's happening now, what's happening right now? Is it pleasing to the Lord? No, the whole reason why Malachi is being written is because the people of God are not pleasing the Lord. Oh, brother, that feels like condemnation. Here we go. You know, Keith, I knew you'd go there. I just feel condemned. Anytime I get any sense that God is not pleased with me, I feel condemned. Well, what can I just tell you? Take the red wire off the green thing and stick it on the white thing. You get, you go, you're wired wrong. God's got to be able to show up in your life and say that doesn't please me without you going, huh? Am I even saved? I just feel so condemned by that. You know, God's got to be able to tell you when you're wrong. It's just correction. It's just correction. And it's a good thing. And it's preparing you for future righteousness. You keep going the way you're going, there's not going to be any future righteousness. You're going to sow junk and sow more junk 
and have more junk. But no future righteousness is going to come from your life. So God says, no, no, no. No, we're, we're preparing for future righteousness. I'm not pleased with that. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to jump in your life. I'm going to fix that so that in the future, the righteous offering is going to come from your life. That doesn't mean you're condemned. You want to see what condemnation looks like? It looks like the next few verses. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord. And a whole bunch of other issues that they're practicing are brought up in this context. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them. Right? There's no condemnation here. They're going to be spared. As a man spares his son who serves him, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you, who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Right, did you see something here? Right, judgment here begins with the house of God. The fire of God, his, just his presence. This is not God showing up saying, okay, I'm here and I'm going to turn on judgment. Uh, judgment is on. Judgment off. Judgment on. Judgment off. God is who he is. This is, judgment isn't when God gets in a bad mood, you know. That's what we're like, but he's not like that. Judgment happens because God is who he is, and sin is what it is. And when you put them in the presence of each other, that's what happens. And judgment's the word that we use to describe the interaction of those things. So God comes amongst his people, and the fire of God's purity gets and starts messing with our world, and there's stuff in us, but, but we're God's people. And this refining thing happens, and God is burning off impurities. He's refining us because we're made of something different than those who don't know God. When you became a new creation in Christ, you became gold and silver. And the fire of God comes to gold and silver. That's all got impurities wrapped in it, and it's burning that stuff off. But it's the gold and silver do not get consumed. It gets refined, becomes better. For the unbeliever, the unbeliever is not gold and silver. The unbeliever is burnable material like stubble. And so the fire of God gets around an unbeliever and it consumes their life and destroys them. One ends up in total condemnation. The other one ends up like calves kicking from the stall, leaping forth in joy. Now, do you, do you see the difference between the fire of God amongst the people of God versus amongst those who don't know God? Right? This, this, this matters. Now, does your obedience matter? Well, one, your obedience matters to God. Wayne Grudem says, I see and hear very 
little emphasis on God's taking pleasure in our obedience as Christian believers. This topic seems important to me because I think that evangelicals today are generally afraid of teaching about pleasing God by obedience for fear of sounding as if they disagree with justification by faith alone. Right? Do you understand why he's saying that? I mean, the second I introduce that you need to be responsible for your actions, your actions affect something, your actions are meaningful, then whoa, 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 wait, 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 I thought that I was accepted by God on the actions of another person, on the actions of Christ. I thought he had accomplished all that. I thought my salvation was about what he had done for me, not about what I'm doing for me. Right? So you, you kind of get messing with, okay, well, then let's just dismiss obedience, right? Well, that's, what, that's the argument he's concerned about. He says, but when the need to please God by obedience is neglected, we have millions of Christians in our churches who fail to see the importance of obedience to God in their daily lives. And I, I think he's right. I think we're living in a time where our obedience is, is sort of insignificant. It's no longer a matter of our life is framed in relationship to God out of an obedient relationship. It's now it's almost out of a preferential relationship. Do I prefer to do that? Do I prefer to do what it is that God is suggesting that I do? Right, you guys have all read the ten suggestions, right? <laughs> I mean, here's God, you know. God comes to America. I, I should write this book. God comes to America. He's got some stuff to learn. I mean, God, you understand, we're Americans. We don't have a king here. We elect people, and we kick them out of office. So here, have a shot. <laughs> oh, wow. Little American experiment, a couple hundred years old. It's not how the God of the universe runs things. We cannot turn what God has said to do with our lives into Issues of preference. Do I prefer to do that? You know, it just didn't work out for me. Right? This, you know, this, this spending time with God thing. You know, this study of God's word. Uh, hey, that's, yeah, that's cool for guys who like to read. But see, I'm not a big reader. You know, prayer. Well, you know, I'm so busy. There's such a lot going on. Tithing. You know, I mean, God's about to ream these Malachi folks for, for not tithing. We're not taking 10% of our income and recognizing that every drop of your life comes from me. And you give me a little bit of a head nod. Thanks, guy. You're the man. You don't get my money, but you're the man. You got it. You understand. You don't need my money. You're God. Uh, God takes issue with this. All right, so we can be sitting here this morning and thinking, hey, you know, my Bible reading, my fellowship, my giving money to the kingdom of God, you know, sometimes I'm good on that, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I prefer that, sometimes I don't. See, in the house of God, obedience isn't driving the house of God anymore. It's preference. Do I prefer to do that or not? That's, it's starting to touch all categories. It's starting to touch issues, tough issues, issues like marriage, in the house of God has become an issue not of obedience but of preference. Do I prefer to stay in this relationship? When fiery trials come among you, the things that mean the most to you will be the source of those fiery trials. Otherwise, they won't be fiery. They'll just be limited, distant, not sure I even noticed trials. But if you want to find the fiery trials in your life, they're going to have to do with your job, your wife or husband, your children. I mean, you start running out of stuff really quick. 
After that, everything else is just kind of a speed bump on the highway. So fiery trials are going to come through this kind of stuff. So in the moment of fiery trials, is obedience a priority for me? In the body of Christ today, sadly, in the area of marriage, the very simple thing is you stood with someone at an altar in a building like this before witnesses and before God, and you made a covenant promise to that other person that you would submit the rest of your life to that decision, and you would be obedient to that for the rest of your life in good times and bad, sickness and in health, till death do us part. Not fiery trials do us part. Not personal preferences do us part. This is how marriage used to be. It's not that way anymore. It's not that way in the church anymore. Right? Got this interesting article sent to me. It's a fellow named Russell Moore. He's a seminary professor and lecturer. We have a... Dr. Moore's quote, this is a letter that he received that he responded to. He says, Dear Dr. Moore, my wife and I are at an impasse. There's been no abandonment, no sexual immorality, and no abuse. We just don't get along. We shouldn't have married. We should have known we are incompatible. I know God hates divorce, but I don't have any other option. My pastor and some Christian counselors have told me that while God hates divorce... This is the lesser of two evils because God doesn't want me to be miserable. What do you think? Married but miserable. This, this is worth the price of admission today. <laughs> Dear miserable, here's what I think, and I'm paraphrasing a pastor friend of mine here, with Christian pastors and counselors like these, who needs demons? Dr. Russell Moore said that. Mr. Keith Collins strongly agrees. Divorce isn't about you, and it's not just about your marriage. Divorce is the repudiation of a covenant. It doesn't start anything over again. It instead defaces the icon God has embedded in the creation of the union between Christ and his church. Right now. I don't think he goes far enough in saying this. God's not interested in the image of Christ and his church being a miserable picture. So if your marriage is miserable, it's out of bounds. It needs to get fixed. And not just in the life to come, as he highlights, but in this life. I do believe that there are exceptions to Jesus' prohibition against divorce, namely unrepentant sexual immorality or abandonment by a gospel-repudiating spouse. Neither of these, according to you, are present here, and so you do not have reason to leave. I plead with you to reconsider this and to understand that when you give account before the judgment seat of Christ, these counselors you have around you will not be present and their cowardly justifications for sin will ring quite hollow. Listen, you don't, you don't always like what you hear when you come for counseling with one of us. I'm, I'll tell you that right now, and some of you won't come because of that. But you won't be apologizing for what we say to you on that day. You, you may hate my guts. You may hate some of our guts when you come and see us. 
but, but I'm going to stand before God, and God's going to ask me, well, did, did, what, what were you telling these people? I'd already said how they were to live. Oh, but, but God, you're not nearly as sympathetic as I am. Oh, really? Really? I wrote the book on sympathy, and God didn't. When did that happen? Does God want you to be miserable long-term? No. And that's why God has designed marriage as a lifelong covenant signaling the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the long-term, God wants you to be deliriously happy. But by long-term, I mean the next trillion years and beyond. In the short term, one often must bear difficulty and, yes, even misery. That's what 1 Peter is saying here. Remaining faithful to a wife you wish you hadn't married might seem miserable to you, but taking up a cross and following Jesus is miserable in the short run. That's why the book of Hebrews presents the life of faith in terms of not receiving what was promised, but seeing it and embracing it from afar. If you take the nuclear option of divorce off the table, you might find that you and your wife have more reason to seek help with your problems and make this work. But even if your marriage never becomes what you thought it might be, it is worth it to stand by your words and maintain fidelity to the wife of your youth. And that terminology comes, the wife of your youth comes from Malachi, where God says you have dealt treacherously with the wife of your youth. Right, the ESV says of Malachi, Malachi called the people to repentance with respect to the priesthood which had become corrupt, worship which had become routine, divorce which was widespread, social justice which was being ignored, and tithing which was neglected. See, obedience was gone for the people of Malachi. They weren't obedient to the gospel. They were living preferentially. I don't prefer that, therefore I won't do that. But we're not called to a life of preference. We're called to a life of obedience. Let me tell you why your obedience matters to you. You may not have thought this through very carefully. Question there in your outline. Have you ever considered that obedience is connected to the gospel? Verse 17, we just read. Go back to 1 Peter here. Have you ever considered that the good of the gospel is related to your obedience to the gospel? Did you hear me? The good of the gospel is related to your obedience to the gospel. Do you understand that there are people for whom the gospel will never be good news for them? The gospel is good news. But for those who don't believe it, who don't obey it, who don't submit to and receive from God this good news... They will face the judgment of God for all eternity. They will know nothing of the goodness of God. So without obedience, the goodness of the gospel doesn't get experienced. Verse 18 says, if the righteous are scarcely saved, I think a better translation is is if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, right? This, this process of God refining our faith through fiery trials so that it endures to the end. That's the difficulty. It's not the difficulty that if you and I crawl across enough glass, climb enough mountains, polish our behavior, act real nice, then finally we will have gone far enough in this difficult obstacle course of salvation to get to the end and God will declare that we are now saved. No. No. No, right? That's not the gospel. 
The gospel presents salvation to me as a gift. I, I don't earn it. There's nothing I can do to earn it. But the, but the Bible hangs this little reality onto our lives that says those who endure to the end will be saved. You ever try to monkey around with that verse a little bit? What do you do with that verse? I mean, we're reformed in our theology here. Do you just, what, just leave that verse alone? No, I can tell you here today. You get to the end, and you don't have faith in the gospel, you will not be saved. Well, what does that say about me right now? I may not be able to explain that great. I think it just raises questions about whether you ever were a believer, quite honestly. But when you, when you stand before God to gain entrance into his presence forever, those who endure to the end will be saved. How does God get us to endure to the end? Well, when you read all over the New Testament, you find out God uses fiery trials. He takes this faith and he puts it in us, this gold to be refined, and then he adds heat throughout our lives, and he adds more heat throughout our lives, and he adds more heat, and there's refining, and this junk is being removed, and as I'm receiving the work of God in my life, my faith is being refined and refined and refined and refined. It's refined in a furnace. It's refined in heat. But I don't want to go monkeying around with, I don't know that I want to submit to you, God. I don't know that I want to obey you. Right? And understand, obedience is wrapped up in this process, right? Walk with me quickly through 1 Peter here. Chapter 1, verse 2. We're called in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for obedience to him. Look down in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Grieved. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Right? Do you see that gold and your faith are kind of the two things that are being connected here? It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When? At the end. When you endure to the end. When you make it through, God having put his hands on your life with fire after fire after fire that purified and purified the gold that he put in you by faith. So that in the end, that gold is going to serve you well. You want to monkey with that? Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Did you hear that? Listen, in some way here, it seems as though obedience matters. Obedience is part of this trial heat thing that God is doing. Now, I'm not going to expand on that too much farther, but let me tell you where your obedience matters here. Because in the end here, you're about to get some advice from God that some of us just are not going to want to take. You're in a fiery trial. The heat is hot. It's hot in categories that mean something to you. It's hot in ways that are touching what you want your life to be like. It's hot in things that feel disappointing. My expectations have not been met. I'm being hurt. I'm afraid. Right? This is what trials feel like. 
can't just make trials sound like it's some missionary book that we read about people in another third world country who are going through some difficulties. That's trials. Listen, trials is the heat that makes you have to have faith in God. That's what trials are. It makes you have to reach outside of your situation and grab something in God. And that's where this verse ends up. The advice for those in the midst of trials and suffering is entrust your souls to God and do good. That's the umbrella, umbrella here for biblical counseling. Are you getting biblical counseling in your life? Because if you are, it's going to sound like this whole passage here. One, don't be surprised. Right? You've got an event going on in your life. You come and present it. Right? I know most of us, we present our situations like, and this has never happened to anyone before. You know, it's like, but you don't understand you're not married to him. It's one of a kind, baby. No one's experiencing this. Right? That's how we feel about all of our trials. All right, word number one in that moment, don't be surprised. You sound surprised. Do we need to work on not being surprised? Right? You live in a fallen world. There's a real live enemy. He's after you. He's designed this to be as intense as possible. Yes, it, it seems overwhelming. Yeah, okay, but, but you're not surprised by that, are you? Because the Bible told us don't be surprised. All right, so that's step number one. Don't be surprised and trust yourself to God and do good. Now, I'm loving that. I'm loving that advice, right? Aren't you? Isn't that the kind of counsel you're loving? You're, you're sucking eggs here. I mean, it's hurting. And, and you go up to your friend and you share, I just, I just need to download. This is what's going on. Blah, 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 blah. And they kind of cut to the chase. Listen, please, please don't cut to the chase too fast, right? Do, do have some care and compassion for people in their moment. But at some point, maybe at the end of the hour or two, you're going to be with them. Or maybe two days later or maybe two months from now, your advice is going to sound something like this. You need to trust God. And you need to do what's right. If your advice doesn't sound like that, you're not giving biblical counsel to people. Right Now, listen, I'm with you. I don't, I don't like that advice in the moment. I like it right now when I don't feel like I'm on fire <laughs> and I'm reading this and studying it. But I don't like it in the moment. And how kind of God, on your behalf, not on mine, to allow me to study this later in the week rather than in the beginning of the week so that I'd have a real live example of this for my own life. Walking out to go to work early in the week, having not studied this passage just yet, <clears throat> and on my way out, things are just not going the way I want them to go. You know, I'm, I'm busy this morning. I, I've got a lot of things going on. I've got a lot to, my mind is on this and on this, and I have to do that, and this person needs to schedule that thing. And, and around the house, you know, I'm getting a dose of, I live in a fallen world. And... <clears throat> I live with fallen people who don't seem to do all the things that I've already asked them to do more than once. And so that's just adding to my day. And there's more work now for me as a result of you not doing what I've already asked you to do before. Apparently, that odor of irritation began to get off of me, and my wife noticed. And so she communicated that to me and let me know how irritated I seemed to be. And immediately... Immediately, I went into this mode. I immediately sought to justify why it was that I was irritated, why I had a right to that, because in the end, justifying would mean that I don't need to do the right thing. 
I don't need to do what's good. See, honey, what I'm after is I just want some sympathy and, and I want license. I want sympathy and license. That's what I'm after. So let me explain to you why I'm doing it. And I did. I actually sat and did this to her. I explained, I've got this, I've got this. I made a case for myself. Now, I guess in that moment she should have gone, oh, my gosh, honey, that's, that's unbelievably overwhelming. I'm surprised you didn't just burn the house down on your way out the door. <laughs> really, really. So anything less than that, I'm really impressed with. You are an awesome guy. But that's not how our exchange went. She did later in the day send me a text that sounded like, you know, God is sovereign over our lives. You know, it did sound like trust God. You know, I don't think she was thinking of this verse. I don't think she was thinking I was going here. But in the moment, what you and I need to hear in some of these situations is we're going to need to trust God. And we're going to need to do what's right. And when I'm in a fiery trial and my life is on fire, I don't want to do what's right. I want somebody's head to roll. I want somebody who's behind the heat. The guy with the matches, I want him. I want something happening to him. Right? That's where I'm at. Now, listen, I I know you're there too. Whether it's your boss or your teacher, somebody in a role in your life has done something wrong and you feel wronged by it. You feel justified that you got no faith right now. Your life is out of control. It's terrible. And you want to do the wrong thing toward that person, right? Marriages. Your spouse has disappointed you. Your spouse has not met your expectations. Your spouse has sinned against you repeatedly. You want to hear the advice that says you need to entrust your soul to God and you need to do what's right. You don't want to do what's right. You want out. I've had enough of this. This, listen, this is, this is where biblical counseling goes, right? And it's not new to First Peter. If we've been reading this book carefully, this book is all over this advice. When you encounter fiery trials, and they're attached to people, circumstances, and events in your life, do good. Here's do good, right? Let me ask Eric to go ahead and come back up here. Chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, including when your life is on fire. You understand, this whole First Peter is about life on fire. It's about living as a Christian with your life on fire. You are in a fiery trial. You're in a moment that wants to make you say, but you don't understand, the normal rules don't apply to me right now because this is horrible and I'm desperate and I want to give up. I want to quit. I'm so angry right now I could hit you and you're not even involved. Right? That's how the counselor takes, you know, it's a risk to be a counselor sometimes. It's, that's the audience for 1 Peter. That's who Peter is talking to. These are not people on easy street. Everything is going well. It's just one favorable event after another in my life. And then this thing comes along. Don't return evil for evil. Well, I won't. I'm just not in that kind of mood today. Everything's coming up roses. No. 
you're being mistreated. You're being abused. You're being hurt. You're being disappointed. Don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless. Do good. Right? Do you remember the context for that little passage right there? It followed up on the Son of God who was mistreated when he did nothing but good. It followed up on citizens who were being called upon to submit to Caesars who were burning people alive. It called upon wives who were living with disobedient husbands who weren't doing right by them to submit to those men and blow their minds with unbelievable love. That's the context for don't return evil for evil. Don't repay somebody for what they're doing. And we just get right back to that again here. Do good. Blow somebody's mind. Now here's the tough part. Here's what enables me to do good. Entrusting my soul to God. Don't you hate that advice? Brother, you you just need to trust God. It's a shame those words have become so meaningless and irritating. Brother, you just need to trust God. Keith, you just need to believe something accurate about God right now. In the midst of how you're feeling, I mean, bro, I'm, I'm with you. I'm sympathetic. I'm hurting along with you. I'd probably be doing worse than you're doing right now. But listen, right now in this moment, it's, it's not a moment for you to make friends with misery. Right now, this is a moment for you to fight for faith. This is a moment for you to let God be who God really is. For you to look at God and let him be who he really is. Believe something big about God right now. That's what I'm asking you to do. Can you do that? In the midst of what you're going through, as terrible as it feels, can you entrust your soul to God? Can you look at God and believe big things about God right now? Biblical counseling. It's not easy counseling. It, it, quite honestly, it doesn't even sound like sympathetic counseling. But it is. It's insightful counseling because it recognizes, listen, right now, don't be surprised. You are in the fire, and I know where the fire brings you. The fire is about taking the gold that's in you. It's making your faith go to the next level from glory to glory so that on that day you're going to stand in the end and you're going to celebrate the salvation of God on that day. God's at work right now. That's what you're going through. It's well-informed counsel. It's not man-centered, temporary-minded counsel. Listen, some of you guys are paying money to get man-centered, temporary counsel, uninformed by the Bible, uninspired by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. You're paying money for that. Somebody that will give you counsel that will sound like, okay, we need to do everything in our power to fix your fire. We need to put this stinking fire out. That's what we need to do. Be very careful about what kind of counsel you're getting. Your counsel should sound like, don't be surprised. And trust your souls to God. Do good. I can't do good. Yes, you can do good. Yes, you can. All right, let me close with this thought from Thomas Schreiner. He says, We learn from verse 12 and 17 to 18 that the suffering that strikes believers is according to God's will. It passes through his loving hands 
for the purification of believers. Hence, those who belong to God should entrust their lives to their faithful creator, just as Jesus entrusted his life to God when he suffered. Faithful creator signifies that God is sovereign and true. He is sovereign, and so no suffering occurs apart from his will. He is faithful, so he will see it, see to it, that the suffering does not exceed what we can bear. He will do that. Can you dare to believe that about God in your season? All right, I want us to stand together. I want the, the Lord to have some access to us this morning. And I just want you to allow God to survey what's, what's been going on in your life right now. So just begin just to listen differently now. Thank you for listening for the word preached. Begin to listen to the voice of the Spirit who's, who right now he's bringing up people in your life. He's bringing up events. He's bringing up strong emotions that you've been experiencing. He's maybe connecting you with something you heard in the message or maybe he's just taking you to a different place. But he's speaking to you right now. God is here in our midst. How many of you guys would just say, and just I want everybody just to have a private moment. I don't think I'm going to bring anybody forward, but I, I just do want you to participate. So just, you know, close your eyes and be in with God. I just want you to be honest, though. How many of you guys right now would, would raise your hand and you'd say, I'm in a fiery trial right now. I feel like I'm in the fire. Let me see your hands. I want you to think about that trial. Think about the people involved. I want you to think about how long it's been going on. To think about how it's made you feel, the thoughts that you've had to battle and manage. I know the first thing I want to tell you is do not be surprised. You're not out of bounds. You didn't miss the train. Somehow you got left in this desolate, desolate place. God is at work. You're still on the field. God is still being God in your life right now. He didn't forget you. You live in a fallen world. Things don't always work right. Part of what God's doing is lifting your eyes from here and he's trying to get you to look into eternity. Say one day, one day, You will shed no more tears. Your minds won't run into the worst of places with thoughts that trap you. Your bodies won't break down one day. But we're on our way to that day right now. Where you are right now, things do break. They don't work right. One day you're going to be in the presence of God and the only spiritual being you'll have to worry about is the Holy Spirit. But we're on our way to that day and we're not there right now. 
You have a real live opponent. He knows your name. He's strategic and intentional. Some of the fiery trials are because he knows exactly where to hit you. He knew where your soft spot was. He knew the things that mattered to you, and he right now he is after you and your faith. He's after your faith, but the fiery trial, what he doesn't realize is he's just the flame that God is using to refine your faith. Because it's gold. It's not wood, hay, and stubble. It's not going to fail. It's going to get refined and purified. It's getting prepared for a future day. That's what God's doing right now. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose hope in that. Entrust yourself to God. Can you right now think accurately about God? Can you trust God this morning? Do you have cause to trust God this morning? Do you know some things about God that that needs to occupy you for a moment here? Capture your attention, turn you to God in a fresh, meaningful way. God, I trust you. God, what I, all that I know of you, all that I know of your workings and history in my own life throughout the word, and God, I trust you. I trust myself to you again, Lord. I'm not going to try and do this on my own. I'm not going to try and manage. I'm not going to try and make the script follow my lines. God, I trust you. You are at work in my life. What is God calling you to do? Listen, I know when you're hurting, sometimes you just want a break from doing anything. But sometimes that break is very unhealthy because God's advice is trust him and do good. Trust him and do good. Okay, right now in your trial, what is God calling you to do right now? What's the action point of God that he's calling you to do something good? something righteous, something mind-blowing that only God would come up with something like that. What's he calling you to do? Okay, now, I think God's had plenty of opportunity to give you some takeaways today, and I, I trust that this umbrella for biblical counseling will touch many aspects of our lives. But before we go, I want to pray for married couples. And so I want everybody else to sit down. I want all of you who are married or perhaps you are in a situation where you are hopeful for God to restore your marriage. I want you to remain standing. Listen, the headlines, if you follow the headlines, marriage in our country is being redefined, right? You follow those headlines? God's original plan for one man with one woman throughout their lives is be, has been abandoned for years. It's being uniquely abandoned in the day in which we live. And so when it gets really, 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 really so far removed from what God had in mind, it makes us as Christians feel like, well, what I'm about to do isn't all that bad. I'm just going to step right here. God said, do this. Well, I know, but I'm not talking about going way over there and doing that. I'm just going to step right here. Right? Some, there, there, there are marriages standing up in this room right now that that you really have made a biblical stand and commitment that you never will divorce. 
It's not an option. It's not a discussion that you have. So for you, way over there is that thing called divorce. Society's doing it. Lots of people are doing it. I'm not doing that. I'm just doing this right here, though. Right? God's calling me to live this way as a husband, this way as a wife. And I'm not that over there. I'm just this right here, though. Listen, the, your marriage is not up for you to prefer it to be a certain way. Your marriage is a matter of obedience to God. Husbands are called to be obedient, to be this kind of God-glorifying husband. Wives are called to be this kind of God-glorifying wife. And if you're hesitating for any reason because your marriage has been a form of a fiery trial, listen, do not be surprised that you're married to a fiery trial. Because you are. God is using that trial to refine your faith so that it endures to the end. That fire is a gift from God in your life. I know you don't like it. You don't like the way it feels sometimes. But don't be surprised. Trust God and do good. Yeah, but he hasn't or she hasn't given me a reason to do good. That's not what it says, right? Don't repay evil for evil, but a blessing in the face of evil. But they've disappointed me. He or she has hurt me. There's been sin against me. Will blow their mind and do good. Be a mind-blowing husband. Be a mind-blowing wife in the face of, but it's been evil. I understand, but I mean, do you understand you're arguing against the Bible when you present these things? The Bible's recognizing, yes, you feel like your life is on fire. Don't be surprised. Entrust yourself to God and do good. That's the call of marriages in the body of Christ. So, guys, if you're here and you, you've, you've got a distant relationship going on with your spouse, you're not talking divorce, you're just distant, you've settled in, you're not doing good, you're not entrusting yourself to God in some great way in your marriage, listen, this morning, God wants to get a hold of you. God wants that to change. If you're here and you've given up and you are talking about divorce, and that's where you feel like you're headed. I hope you heard this morning. You, you, that's, that's not God. That's not what God has. So, but our, our situation is complicated. Listen, don't be surprised. Most marriage situations are complicated. It's the two different life stories getting wrapped up into one. Boy, is that complicated. Yes, it is. Don't be surprised. I hope you're not freaked out when you come for counsel sometimes and you tell us your story and some of us kind of respond with, oh, that's not that bad. <laughs> you know, I heard much worse last week or I've been through worse than that and, you, and you, it's like we want out. No. So can we pray for marriages to get a fresh revelation from God in them? Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gift of marriage. Lord, thank you for all these couples that are here. Lord, each of them have a story to tell. Some situations have been good. Lord, some of them have been bad. Some of them have been fiery trials. Lord, we, we didn't put that into the marriage vows. We want fiery trials. Lord, we wanted children. We wanted a house that was happy. We wanted companionship and friendship. We didn't want fiery trials. But yet... 
remember not to be surprised that in relationships there are fiery trials and you are at work in them. It doesn't mean that we missed you. It means that you're at work refining our faith and giving us the grace and the ability to not only trust ourselves to you, but to do good. So Lord, I pray that these verses would find fertile soil in our hearts. Husbands and wives would would stop taking a break from what you've called us to be. Stop being distant from that place. But instead, Lord, we'd have faith. We'd trust ourselves to you. We'd believe something big about you. And then we would do good towards our spouse in mind-blowing ways. Lord, I pray for the day that my wife would be able to say about me, my husband just blew my mind the way he loved me all the years of our marriage. May that be true. May that be our experience. May that be the story that we have to tell as redeemed people of God with the refining fire of God beginning in the household of God. Accomplish these things, Lord, for your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thank you.